So uh, let's see here. I am going to hit record. So take one whenever you're ready. Hi, I'm Joe Rome, author of How to Go Viral and Reach Millions. And this is Room Room Veer podcast. Perfect. Thank you, sir. All right. I'm going to hit stop. I'll be right back. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith, where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Oscar Trimboli, thank you so much for being on Vroom Vroom Veer, and welcome to the show. How's it going? G'day. It's uh, just sun rising on a lovely Saturday morning in the beginning of summer in Sydney. We're looking forward to about 80 degrees today and not much breeze, so I'm really looking forward to getting out on the ocean for a swim as the ocean swim season starts. Nice. I'm jealous. I want to be in uh, Sydney, Australia. Well, it's pretty nice yeah. here. In Las Vegas, Vegas, pretty good too. It's pretty good, but I don't have an ocean next to me. That's, nah, that's five true. hours you've away. Got, <laughs> you've got an ocean of sand. That's right. That's right. I do have two pools, so I could do that. Two? Two. Well, I mean, I live in a, a housing community, and there happens to be two community pools. Okay. That would be weird if I had two pools at my house. <laughs> That would be the lifestyles of the rich and famous, and I'm not that, neither. <laughs> just, just Steve Baxter and you. There you go. There you go. I'm sure if you came to visit him in Australia, you'd have two pools. Yes, yes. We can talk a little bit more about Steve Baxter and how we connected later. But uh, <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit about what you've got going on at OscarTrimboli.com. Look, I'm on a quest to train 100 million deep listeners in the world by 2030, and I spend every day being obsessed about the commercial implications of not listening in the workplace. So I help train people in the workplace, whether that's in groups or in one-on-ones. I spend uh, a lot of time speaking on the topic where I get invited to events where they're looking for someone really different. They're looking for a veer rather than the uh, standard communication speaker right. where people can understand a bit more about listening because despite the fact we spend at least 55% of our day listening, only 2% of us know how. Everyone remembers their math and English teacher, but no one can remember their listening teacher and it's not hard to see the cost of not listening. So imagine if you could improve the productivity of your day by something you spend at least half your day doing. Mm, wow. Yeah, you're right. I mean, not a lot of people, you know, I know somebody told me that most people, when they think they're supposed to be listening, are really not listening, but they're thinking about what they want to say. Yeah, I call that the shrewd listener. The shrewd listener. <laughs> right. The nope. shrewd listeners already formulating not only their answer, but telling themselves in their head how silly you are because they've anticipated three more problems you haven't even thought about. And they're going to be so smart because not only going to answer the question you haven't finished saying, uh, they're going to answer two more. And the reality is they're completely distracted 
because they don't understand the 125-400 rule, which means although I speak at 125 words a minute, you can listen to 400, which means you're completely distracted and it's happening right now to you listening to this podcast while you're running, while you're commuting, you're drifting away. And I want to say, okay, come back, listen in. It's really <laughs> worth it. I love it. I love it. We're going to dig more into that 125 to 400 rule and, and how that can apply later. And we're also going to talk more about the art and science of listening because that's your thing. But first, mm. let's get some stories about little Oscar in your early childhood. So you grew up and uh, spent your whole life there in Sydney. So what was, what was your early childhood like? Yeah, I won the genetic lottery. My parents are both first-generation migrants from Italy, uh, one from the deep north, as far north as you can go in Italy, and one from the deep south on the mainland, as far south as you can go. So they were destined to meet in Australia, but because of the centuries of rivalries between regions in Italy, they were also destined never to have a marriage that would last um, because neither side of the family approved the wedding very much of oh, Romeo wow. and Juliet yeah, right. kind of story. Wow. And uh, yeah, so I grew up in a in a outlying suburb of Sydney where the new migrants came. Okay. And still is today. And I was really fortunate. Um, I, I was in a community where you ran around barefoot and you played with your neighbors and there was always something happening either in, in our back garden or in our front lawn. Our back garden was a, beautifully tended by my dad. He grew tomatoes. He grew zucchinis. He grew all kinds of fruit and vegetables that we ate for dinner. Wow, and nice. uh, we, we, were, we, were, we were fortunate. There was me, my younger brother, and my younger sister. And uh, my dad was a really hardworking concreter. He uh, helped uh, build a, a lot of the foundations for a lot of houses in the surrounding suburbs of where I grew up. And my most vivid memory growing up was um, school vacation. And the reason I remember it is I got to go in my dad's uh, red truck around the suburbs of Sydney. So while most people were having school vacations and maybe going away or going to the beach or going to the mountains, uh, school holidays for me meant jumping in my dad's truck, um, sitting in there with a couple of the other people he worked with and uh, traveling usually an hour in the morning one way or another and trying to stay awake and listening to the banter between the people working. Grown-ups and, going to work, basically, yeah. Yeah, and from yeah. that really really early age, uh, the lesson I took out of that and still do. Um, professionalism is in any profession and having a great work ethic uh, and being really mindful of your craft. Uh, these people were building the foundations of people's houses, so often ignored, often the first people on the site and it's bare ground and if they get it wrong, well, the rest of the house doesn't work as well. So they were first on site and often last to be paid. So that wow. was a bit of a struggle struggle for my dad. Right. But uh, I also learned about teamwork from that group of people. And uh, I learned how hot Sydney summers can be when you're out in the open and uh, you're pouring concrete. And um, up until the age of 
19. That's where I spent my school holidays. I didn't wow. really wow. have any kind of vacation uh, like that. Um, and then in my first year in university, one of my friends dragged me and said, you can stop working. So I discovered what vacation actually means. I just thought it meant <laughs> thought work it meant in the red, to work. big red truck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's that's actually like a really good like exposure to all sorts of things that I missed out on. I, you know, I think about my childhood, you know, I, you know, it's not like it was bad. I wasn't like abused or anything. I mean, I did what I think most kids did in, on my school holidays is just screw around. Right. Like what you were saying, like running around, um, the neighborhood with the neighbors getting into trouble and, you know, not going very far away from home. But, you know, back then when we were kids, it was like, they would kick you out of the house and tell you to be home at dark, you know, when it got dark. Um, but you know, I, that, that idea of having your, your father have you tangle, tag along and work alongside of him, that seems like it would be, well, kind of hard, you know, on one side, but also just a really good life lesson, right? Yeah. And you know, while, while you're doing it, it's not hard. It's just what you do. You don't, right. you don't, you don't know any, you don't you don't know any different. different. Right. It was, yeah. it was cool. I got to walk around all different kind of suburbs and see all different kinds of things. And we, we, we I remember once he took me to this amazing harborside mansion. And then a week later, we're, we're working down the bottom of a riverbank because, um, this, this bit of property hadn't been developed and we were the first people stepping on b- b- apart from the surveyors who'd laid out the pegs of where the, where the concrete needed to go. And we worked there for a uh, good, good three months. And, um, it was uh, amazing to see, uh, that site develop over time as well. That's fun. I, I, it sounds to me like you had a nice, uh, fun early childhood there. So what were you, what were you like in, in high school? Were you a good listener back then? Uh, I think looking back on it, I might say I was. Okay. Uh, 23 nationalities at our high school. Wow. We had, Holy cow. And, and that time, there was a lot of people um, coming out of Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, uh, refugees basically from the Vietnam War. Wow. Okay. Equally, at the same time, there was a lot of uh, change going on in South America, particularly in Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, Chile, and there were people coming from there. And equally, Eastern Europe, people were fleeing out of Eastern Europe. We had people at school from um, Estonia and Latvia and uh, people from Lithuania which in those days were all part of the USSR. I'm dating right. myself here. Right, right. And, and, you know, what I noticed about myself at high school was I was always a connector between the the jocks and the nerds. I was the connector between the teachers and the students. I was the connector wow. between the native English speakers and the non-native English speakers. And um, people always kind of wanted me on their team for card playing games. So the cards, we games we used to play at high school in lunchtime. And, um, yeah, we even did it during class. Um, <laughs> don't, don't tell the teachers. Don't, don't tell anyone. Right. Um, and we, we were playing card games um, that were English card games where the suits were all in English, but we equally played card games that were Italian card games oh, wow. and um, Chinese card games. So 
Uh, and they were always played in teams of two against each other. You'd be diagonally opposite. And uh, I'm, I've got this thing called discalculus, which means I'm transposed numbers all the time. So I can't count cards, let alone get my um, message back from somebody who's left me a message and dial the right number. I, I, I make lots of friends by dialing the wrong numbers because <laughs> I've got this problem with transposing numbers. and. Right. Uh, I like so that. for me, it was just watching how people's faces were interacting with each other and responding to what they saw when they looked at their cards. And despite the quote unquote poker face that, you know, high, high school people tried to create, I, I could see pretty you could, often. You could read it, right? So I was kind of listening to their face uh, ah. in that. Yeah. in that context. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it's kind of like there's no lightning bolt moment where I went, ah, that's where I became passionate about listening. But it's just all little pebbles along a journey in my life. Yeah, um, and it sounds that's like a you were a bit of a, like a, a, an ambassador almost. Ah, oh, yeah. If you talk to one of my teachers, they'd say I'm a cheeky bugger. <laughs> I I remember in my last year of school, I won the prize for economics in, in that subject. And um, I'd broken my leg when I was uh, six months out from finishing. So I was I was playing um, football, you'd call it soccer. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a really bad break. They put me in hospital for nearly a week to sort it out. And I came wow. to school in six months out from finishing. Anyway, so I, I loved I loved economics. I love studying it and all of that, but I, I I don't like the spotlight. That's probably another reason why I chose listening because you can be in the background rather than in the foreground. And the, Michael Bilton, his teacher, um, mentioned to me <clears throat> as an award ceremony in a week's time. And given you're on crutches, will you be able to attend? And I basically said, "Look, I know I'm the best. Just give the award to someone who needs encouragement." Wow. <laughs> good for you. Well, it, that's not a good thing. That's uh, That was perceived as a really arrogant comment. And, but uh, I don't think that you were meaning it to be arrogant. Well. Or maybe you were. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, think, I think in the moment, yes. And in hindsight, I guess I could retrofit the story into my encouraging way. Um, but. I, 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 I'm never one for awards. So me and my wife both run half marathons and marathons and she's a medal collector. Yes. And it's like when I cross the finish line, I just walk through and she, in the beginning, Jen would say, where's your medal? And I go, oh, give it to someone who needs it. I don't need the medal. I know I've done it. And right. she'd roll her, she rolls her eyes at me and she goes, ah, the economics prize, right? And yeah, that's where. <laughs> Kind of all, so she already knows the story from high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So part of me could go, I was really generous and someone else got the prize, but they didn't give it to anybody else. And uh, what was quite funny, <laughs> they should have known better. So they got me in to speak to the commencement class the following year. So at the beginning of the final year of school, they got me in because I'd had this unfortunate event and I broke my leg and I... Had, they had the um, uh, the 
top prize winner and the highest marks getting up and speaking. And and then they put me up and said, you know, you're all going to have some misadventures, ups and downs, and your final year is not going to go perfectly. Oscar's going to come up and have a, have a chat. And I, and I got up and I said, look, this last year of schooling is not going to define your life. So enjoy it and walked off. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Bilton, who organized it, should have known better. He didn't ask me what I was going to say. And um, (laughs) I still say say to this day it was the right advice to to give people coming through because we put way too much emphasis on it. And in fact, you know, this podcast is dedicated to the fact that your life's full of twists and turns and what you design at the beginning and how much we think is so important and right. put so much energy into defining at the beginning of our life, you know. You can pretty yeah. much say every that I think, like when you look back at everything that you've like fretted over, at least for me, what I'll say is in my experience, everything that I worried about that that I made into a mountain that was actually a mohill after, you know, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? You know, I was, yeah, uh, it seems like just, I'm not doing it as much, but I still do it is like, just, I don't know, whatever we're afraid of, we always make it more than it is. Right. I think that's a recurring theme. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's move on uh, to a story from college. You went to college. I'm assuming I, I am assuming a lot. All right. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. So being the son of two first-generation migrants and in our community uh, growing up with all the other migrants around you, you were taught the value of education and education is incredibly important. And my my dad's education was pretty basic. My mum's education was a little bit better, but they reinforced the importance of that. So I didn't really know what the heck I wanted to do Right. And Most people my, don't. My, my dad said, you know, accountants will never lose their jobs. You know, mm, if you don't right. know what to do, go and be an accountant. With artificial intelligence today, that's not a true statement. <laughs> and uh, so if you're an accountant out there, uh, watch out. Those computers are coming to your repetitive tasks. I get good at the stuff that adds value, not the bookkeeping and compliance stuff. Right. So uh, there was a, a very uh, famous uh, economic school at the University of Sydney that I wanted to go to. And um, while I was at university there, we, I, I noticed something on the, on the uh, pinboard. Um, you know, today it would be on an app, but um, we had these um, cork boards where notices and results were posted. You didn't go to a website to get right. your results. You, right, we right. went there. And um, about three months into studying, there was a job advertised there for a uh, accountant, uh, an audit clerk in an accounting firm. And I was quite bored um, by university because it was just going way too slow for me. I mean, people sat on the lawn and they drank coffee and there were gaps in the day and, you know, I was a, someone who spent my <clears throat> vacation time 
you know, truck concreting. So work ethic (laughs) to me was like, come on, come on, can we go a bit faster? Right, right, yes, I get it. Anyway, so I interviewed for this role and uh, I was rung up the next week and said, sorry, you haven't got it. We've offered it to somebody else. And I went, oh, okay. Um, So I learned a good lesson from that. I, I, I wrote a card and said, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and I learned um, how to do my first ever interview. And uh, about a month later, they rang me back and said, um, we've got more work again now. Um, We'd like to hire you. We don't need to do another interview. Come and work for us. So my first ever job was counting spark plugs in a motor vehicle dealership as part of an audit. And they were lovely cars. They were beautiful Jaguars. Um, They imported all the British car series into this um, organization. And I was literally counting spark plugs. And we were working on spreadsheets, but not as you know them. They were literally sheets of paper. Wow. No kidding. Ledgers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So visualize an A3 piece of paper. So not a small piece of paper, a big piece of paper. And the juniors wrote in pencil and the, and the managers wrote in pen because they knew what they were doing. <laughs> and, uh, they couldn't possibly make mistakes. No, no, no. All managers are perfect. Right. And <laughs> what, what happened uh, was my reconciliations were consistently wrong. And my manager, Robert, and he, he said to me, at lunchtime tomorrow, we're going to do a quick test. And it was really frustrating because I could do a little bit of maths, but I didn't think that what I was doing with the numbers was really sophisticated. Anyway, so we sat over at a lunch table and Robert read out 20 phone numbers to me. And of the 20 phone numbers, 14 of them I wrote down correctly and six I got wrong. And what I was doing was I was transposing the numbers. So if the number was one, two, three, four, I'd write one, three, two, four, or one, four, two, three. And as a result, the math behind it is if you transpose a number, the error is always divisible by nine. Some, you know, Sheldon Cooper would know why that happens in math. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. But I didn't. And um, basically, Robert said, hmm, okay, seems like we've got a problem here. Anyway, he called in his manager about two weeks later and the three of us had lunch together and Bill said, well, your career in accounting's over. Um, transposing numbers is probably not going to be useful when it comes to accounting. I know we can occasionally get creative in accounting, but we can't keep turning our numbers around. <laughs> um, and, and I was kind of there. The only thing that was going through my head while I was saying all of this was how am I going to get the money to pay for my university because if you successfully finished a subject with a distinction average, you would they would pay half of your tuition for okay. you. So I'd budgeted that and figured out that's what my savings plan was and all was going through my head is where am I going to get the money? Where am I going to get the money? Where am I going to get the money? And I wasn't really listening. And Bill said something that changed my life. And he said, um, what do you know about computers? I said, Bill, 
I'll be completely honest with you. I know nothing about computers. And he said, great. What I love about you is you don't bullshit. And so we're never going to bullshit each other from now on about the computers. But I'd like you to go and buy some computers for our organization because computers are a thing of the future and they're the future of accounting. And that set me on a, uh, on a completely different path. Um, wow. It kind of, kind of ended up bringing me to where I am today in a roundabout really? way. Wow. Mm. So what was the very first program you used on that computer to do accounting or spreadsheets? Yeah, so it was a piece of software developed in Australia called Solution 6. And Solution 6 became very famous in the uh, mid-2000s because the company was sold to somebody who had raised a lot of money uh, in a venture capital firm but later they found out the way they raised money for this VC firm was all funded through the proceeds of marijuana sales. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> which, to, which today in the U.S. is perfectly legal. Right. More, um, more, but in those well, days, it was of, a big, yes. big scandal, you know. It was yeah. a big scandal. Wow. Um, so this software, Solution 6, was uh, could calculate livestock, so... If you ran sheep or cattle, goats, horses, the software would calculate those. And I always remember there was a field in there that would calculate births as well as deaths of the livestock. But equally so, there was insolvency and liquidation software that I was working with there as well as good old general ledgers and um, the boring accounts payable and the accounts receivable as mm. well. So. Yeah, I've forgotten how many accounting systems I've installed since then. Someone challenged me to figure it out, and I reckon it's somewhere north of a 1,000 wow. accounting softwares that I've yeah. been involved in installing right. through the decades. You know, I uh, when I was still, I want to say it was a, my last year of high school, I was in this uh, business, they called it business cluster. And it was a cluster because there was, it was a two-hour class back-to-back. -back. And my second year, no, my first year, it was my first year. So this was my junior year, not my, my senior year. But the, my junior year, the, uh, the, the teacher for the data processing section, they had like accounting, they had um, data processing, and one uh, maybe clerical or secretarial. I think. Mm. And I was in data processing. So this is like late 80s, I guess, right? Uh, okay. So right, you're right. past the punch card era now. Yes. So we had a, a we had a, an IBM System 36 uh, mini right. computer and a couple of uh, IBM uh, AT clones. Um, mm. So it was just like at, right at the cusp of the um, personal computer kind of like taking over for the mm. old kind of mini computers. But yeah. anyway, um, he, the, the teacher in the beginning of the, like the first day of the year or first day of school said, okay, there was only like a handful of us in data processing, eh, all my buddies. Right. Mm. And he, he had like a, a big table and a bunch of big books, you know, like computer software books that he had yeah. got. Right. And he was like, pick a top, pick a book. And that's going to be your thing. And you're going to become the guru on that book. 
And that, and so I don't know anything about it. You have to learn and then show us something at the end of the year. <laughs> and my book was Lotus One Two Three. And I made up a spreadsheet that calculated grade averages for the secretary of the class. And she used it. (laughs) Yeah. And then that came back after I graduated two years later. And I used the same spreadsheet to help out because they gave me a job between me graduating high school. I worked part time in that class uh, for about four or five months, something like that. From like after I graduated until I went away to the Air Force. That was fun. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I digress. But yes, so Lotus One, Two, Three. And let me tell you though, that learning that spreadsheet, you know, like just how to like knowing that if you type equals, you're starting a formula, <laughs> right? In a spreadsheet. I, I'm still doing that, you know. It, yeah, Excel yeah, but be is careful. Just, yeah. Be careful. I think your memory's playing tricks with you. Really? Okay. First version of Lotus One Two Three, the start of a formula was a plus, not an equal. You're probably right. Yeah. Wow, you're better. <laughs> oh yes. You're, very, see. very misspent evenings on Lotus One Two Three <laughs> in those days. And you've just prompted pulling a story out of the vault. I was I was in North Sydney on a on, so there's a work ethic thing. I got so obsessed. I work and work and work. And it was a Saturday night. I was about 23 years old. And so if you can picture this, you look from the room I was in. I could look over Sydney Harbour, so you could see the, from this window you could see the Opera House, as well as the Harbour Bridge and this amazing picturesque, beautiful Sydney view. And so it's a Saturday night, and I'd got to know the security guard in the building really well. Right. Because I work late hours. But directly across on our side of the bridge in North Sydney was the Anderson Consulting, which is now known as Accenture Building. And there was one light that was on in the Anderson Consulting Building. And I had, I was determined I was going to outwork this person in the Anderson Consulting (laughs) Building. Okay. So the security guy came back at 11 and he says, oh, he's still working. And I was, yeah, this this uh, bit of software report writer thing is really, you know, complicated and I need to spend time on it. At two o'clock, he came back again. He says, you still haven't cracked it. And I went, no, no, no. And I moved on to other things by then. And then uh, 4 a.m., he came in again. He says, you, you really need to go home. And, uh, and then he came in again at 6.30 when the sun had risen. And what I realized is someone had forgotten to switch the light off in the Anderson Consulting <laughs> Building. You showed them. So the point of the story is be careful who you compare yourself to. Otherwise, you might be competing with a light that somebody forgot to switch off. Amen. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that that, that story could have gone so many ways, right? You know, I I was first imagining like you wanted to meet the person and it turned out to be your wife. That would have been more fun. Let's let's do the story again uh, and make it up. Yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> let's embellish, <Sorry>. right? <laughs> okay, so now we've pretty much um, so we've done your college, you've done your first job. So yeah. let's close one of these loops that we talked about in the beginning because you you suggested that there exists this rule um, that applies to listening, and you're calling it the one twenty five four hundred rule. So. Let's yeah. let's talk about it. Um, describe it again, and then 
let let us let me understand how I can apply that to listening. Mm. So this is mapping the maths of your brain. You see, most people see in color, but they listen in black and white. And the reason they do is they don't understand this simple rule of how the brain works. So I'm speaking at 125 words a minute. I'm probably closer to 100, actually. But if you've ever heard an auctioneer in a cattle yard, um, they speak really quickly. And they typically get to 200 words a minute, which for most people is on the edge of comprehension. But you can listen to up to 400 words a minute. And you can think at up to 900 words a minute. So what happens right now is I'm speaking at 125 words a minute. You're listening to 400 words a minute. And because I can't speak at 400 words a minute, you're filling in your brain with a story that fills in the gap. You're either making up a story about what you're listening to or you're finishing a story about a conversation you've had during the day or you're starting a conversation about something that might happen this evening or tomorrow or some point in the future. We call this self-talk. It's kind of like listening to somebody with your iPod earphones in and uh, you occasionally take it out every, every fourth word. So you're wired to be distracted when you're listening. So the difference between a good listener and a great listener isn't that they'll be distracted. A great listener just has techniques to deal with a distraction when it happens. So to overcome this... Um, start to notice some things in the pattern of what that person's speaking like. So rather than just listening to the words, are the words always about the past or the future? Are they always speaking in negatives or positives? Uh, are they talking about themselves as an individual or are they talking about a group of people? Are they talking about something inside an organization or outside an organization? Are they talking about something inside the family or outside the family? So if you start to notice patterns in what people say, you have a richer listening experience because you can say to them, and I'll say to you, Jeff, what's the patterns you notice when we've been talking together over the last 20 minutes? And that will just help you start to notice them things beyond the words because ultimately what we want to understand is what they mean. But the really good listeners also listen to what's unsaid. And the only way you can explore what's unsaid is asking people some really simple questions like, what else are you thinking about on this topic? Seems like you've thought about this a lot. How long have you been thinking about this? So the 125-400 rule simply says you are programmed to be distracted and have some techniques to get around it. The most basic technique, breathe deeply. So the deeper you breathe, the deeper you listen because you get more oxygen to the brain. And for most of us, uh, we're not even conscious of our breathing. There's this fascinating term called active listening. And it came up in the literature in the 80s and the 90s. And I always say to people, you don't have to actively breathe. Um, there's no books written about active breathing. So why would they need to write books about active listening? If you are actually listening, you do it well. And you know when people aren't listening to you as well. So 
if you can remember the 125-400 rule, just breathe a little deeper during a conversation. That'll help you focus when you get distracted. Mm, yeah, that's good. <clears throat> I, I, I've done this interesting. Uh, th- I like that. That's, that's good. I'm, I was trying to listen. <laughs> oh, I thought you were saying you're trying to breathe. I was trying to breathe too. When you said breathe, then I, I was trying to breathe. I was trying to listen. But um, I've, I've had these, uh, these moments where um, it's almost like the universe is calling me into action to be a good listener. Hmm. Um, where I, I generally, it, it sort of like happened to me like in bars. So you're probably not familiar. You're not being a drinker, but <laughs> oh, it doesn't mean I can't go to bars. That's true because it's a great place to be a listener. For some reason, people at a bar are looking for people to listen to them. I've noticed this. Um, so what, one of my techniques when I, when I started being intrigued by this whole idea of being a good listener was, Everybody says that, um, or I've heard anyway, that there's the, most most of communication is nonverbal, right? Um, so I was always just trying to get uh, something to focus on on their face that wasn't necessarily their eyes, but was like giving them the idea that I'm listening without staring at them. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about? It reminds about? me of a little technique we, we teach people. Okay. Um, so it, imagine an inverted triangle from the eyebrows to the chin. Yeah, okay. And eyebrows that's the zone. The you can just navigate around that, you know, start at the chin, work away up to the right eyebrow, move to the left eyebrow, and back down to the chin. If wow. you keep doing it in that direction, people will notice. Um, but you can just play a game and just next round you start at the chin you go to the left <laughs> that's eyebrow really good that's good and that's the listening zone if you can okay. uh, focus on that part of the face you're miles ahead of everybody else wow so what i was focusing on was uh the area between like above the bridge of the nose mm. it seemed i don't know why but it seemed like a neutral place where yep. you know it was and and not like staring them down. <laughs> but I like yeah. that. I'm going to try your eyebrow, eyebrow, chin kind of yeah. like. Yeah, I like and, that. And it gives um, the the eyebrow, the area you're focusing on just above the bridge is connected pretty closely to where the eyebrows are. And the eyebrows actually give away just as much as the rest of the body. Um, people don't realize how expressive their eyebrows become when they get into natural dialogue. So, You'll notice this now, Jeff, when you start to go to these bars and, um, <laughs> you know, wh- whether the, you know, the, you get the angular eyebrows or the straight eyebrows, they're, they're all giving different inflections. There's no formula about it. Right. Um, but you'll intuitively know when the eyebrows are out of sync with what they're saying and maybe they're being creative with the truth at that point in time. Interesting. <laughs> creative with the truth. <laughs> Well said. I like that. Well, yeah. you know, we here in modern day times, there's alternate facts apparently. So, you know. <laughs> uh, the, uh, fake news, right? That's another very popular catchphrase now. Um, mm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, art and science of listening and uh, and how to get to using the art and the science. Uh, I guess you're working towards breakthroughs, right? through your listening. 
Yeah, look, for a lot of us, we've never been taught how to listen. The, our first listening teacher was always our parents. Right. <clears throat> they'd say, shut up and listen. Or they'd say, why aren't you listening? Mm. Or they, in my day, shut up and listen would be um, um, would come with a gift. And that gift would be a smack around the back of the head or um, <laughs> right. a smack a smack around some other part of the body. Maybe we don't do that as much today, but our first teachers around listening and our listening role models are always our parents and our extended family and and our teachers. Yet <clears throat> nobody knows what the art or the science of listening is. And there, there is definitely a science to listening, whether that's the neurology of the brain that I just explained. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. Or um, it's just the mechanics of um, listening effectively and being in an effective listening environment. So a tip I always give parents, if you travel and you have the opportunity, always FaceTime with your kids if you have that kind of video technology rather than just going to audio only. But if you only have the choice to speak to them on the phone, make sure you are seated or squatted or sitting cross-legged so that your eye level would be at eye level if you were talking to your children. So when you get your eye level to the eye level of the children, you, that's part of the art and the science of listening. And too many times when children are told, for example, to listen, a parent is standing over the top of them. But if they come down to eye level, there's a connection formed there straight away. But more importantly, if you're at eye level, your ears are at the same level as well. So therefore, they can actually hear what you're saying because sometimes kids mightn't actually hear you because you're literally talking over the top of them. Right. So some yeah. of the... Yeah. Some, some of the really most basic, simple things around the science of listening, uh, people overlook. So if you're in a, if you're in a room, uh, again, the same is true. If you can make eye contact with a person, the likelihood that they'll be able to listen to what you're saying is higher because they'll be able to hear you. So if you're in a large meeting room, as an example, always make a point of, turning and facing the person you want to address rather than talk to the room or talk to the person who's immediately in front of you because the chair's kind of facing in that direction. So that's a, just a really simple practical tip that most people would go, that's the 101 of, of listening mm. is, is, is making sure you're hearing. But the most, you know, a lot of the literature talks about focus on the speaker but it's a fallacy. I've researched nearly 1,400 people talking to them about the barriers to listening for them. And the biggest barrier for 96% of people is they listen to themselves while they're listening to somebody else. And they haven't got the conversation out of their head from the last conversation or the next conversation or what they're worried about in this conversation to actually be in the moment. So the most important person to listen to before you even start on the other person as yourself. Clear what's in your mind so you can have some part of your brain available for that person to speak into because if you've got a whole bunch of your mind that looks like a desk and it's got all sorts of things on top of it, there's no space for the conversation to land. So make sure you listen to yourself. That's the first level of listening. 
listening to the content is level two, which is where everybody kind of listens at. They listen to words and sentences, but the more advanced people will listen to the body language and the energy that's coming out from them. I was um, speaking to a lady uh, called Holly Ransom. She's a professional MC. She travels the world doing this. And I asked her what she listens for because she she recently um, interviewed uh, people like um, President Obama and she said what she listens for in leaders is she listens for energy and energy transmits to her the conviction with which they have with that message. So, you know, thinking about the energy that person is transmitting to you right now is really critical. Listening for context is the next level to listen at. And listening for context is what are the patterns we're noticing, but are we taking time to listen to the backstory? Not enough of us in our listening listen back to where we've come from. And Jeff, you've done a brilliant job of that today. You've got my backstory so people know where I'm coming from. They can join the dots. But for a lot of us, our conversations are like joining into uh, a movie theater halfway through the movie and we're trying to make sense of all the characters without knowing where they come from. And instead of being humble and saying, hey, forgive me, could we start at the beginning? <laughs> right, right. Because I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to put this into context. And for a lot of us, we don't have enough humility to go, mm. oh, I'll figure this out. If I stay to the end of the movie, all the characters will make sense. They don't. They don't. Even if even if you've figured out the plot at the three quarter way mark, you're still asking yourself the question: What's the backstory behind that character that brought us here? Mm. And again, for a lot of us, because we don't know the backstory, it doesn't make sense to us while we're listening. And all we simply have to ask is: Is there a a story that sits behind where this is coming from? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And people love to tell that story. You know, yeah, yeah. Your you whole podcast series is about it, right? Right. Yes. And in, and, and in knowing the context, it also helps the speaker frame it in a way that's productive rather than in a way that's just what they're thinking about. So earlier on, I mentioned you speak at 125 words a minute, you listen at 400 words a minute. But if you're really listening, I said you can think at 900 words a minute. So as a speaker, I have 900 words in my head that I can only get through a very narrow filter called my mouth, mm, right. 125 words. So the likelihood of what I'm thinking and what I'm saying as a perfectly formed idea of my thought, there's a one in nine chance that that's going to be wrong. Right. Now, I don't know about you, but if you went to a hospital and the doctor said to you, you got a one in nine chance that this surgery is going to be successful, would you do the surgery? No. It's like 11% success rate. That's so pretty the, bad. <laughs> yeah. So the science for the listener is to get the speaker to explore what's unsaid. We want to drag those other 800 words out of their head and get them to say them. And listening for the unsaid, you kind of go, oh, it sounds like a ninja move. It sounds like this guy's talking Yoda-esque, you know. <laughs> a little how, bit. How, how do you listen to what's unsaid? And it's really simple, you know, when they, when they pause, 
treat the silence like you would another word. So listen to the silence. Don't use that as your commercial break to interrupt. Just listen to the silence. And when they have finished, a simple phrase like, I'm curious what else you've thought about on this topic, will start to pull out those other words. And you know you've cracked it when they say, well, what I really mean is, Mm. Well, what's really important about this topic is what I really should have said to you was, and when these words come out, you know you've explored their unsaid, but more importantly, they've come to their little aha moment, which means we're having a really productive conversation. You know, one, one of um, my favorite coaching supervisors said to me once that if they don't know the person and they come to them in a in a event where there's lots of people there and they'll come up to them and they've got a really really critical question and they'll they'll blurt out this critical question and all they'll say no matter what they've said they'll listen to them they'll listen to them deliberately they'll listen to them with silence all they say to them is now what do you really want to ask me And they say every time, they go, well, actually, and that's another code word, (laughs) well, actually, what I wanted to ask you about was this, but I didn't feel comfortable asking you. Well, let's talk about that. And that's that's listening for what's unsaid. So you Mm. can see elements of art and science in in all of those things. And the last one is listening for meaning. What what sense do people make out of this? I I was speaking at an event. Oh, about nine months ago, and I halfway through it, I was I asked the room to talk to each other. It was a whole bunch of leaders in a in a, a manufacturing organisation, and they said, "I said, right now, I sense there's a lot of tension in this room. I sense the system is struggling with something. So turn to the person next to you and tell them the movie that you guys are all going through right now." So the energy completely changed in the room and everyone was having a chat and we pull it back in and I asked a show of hands, a couple of people to explain what movie they're experiencing. Um, and uh, one person said, you know, Towering Inferno and another one said, I don't know what the movie is, but it would be a disaster movie. Right, okay. And, wow. And, the, and the, the, the managing director came to me afterwards and said, you just put your finger on something that I've been struggling to get people to tell me for months and that people think they're in a disaster movie right now. They would never have dared say that, but because you asked them to say it as a movie to explore the meaning, it could have been a book title, it could have been a TV show, doesn't really matter. Right. He, as a result, went to all of them as a group and said, I value how brave it was for everybody to speak their truth. Now, what can we do about it? Because it was a breakthrough moment for them where they realized that they were all contributing to the disaster as well. So how could they do something about it? But because they could speak their truth without that being, you know, we, we, my boss is a jerk or the company's got the wrong strategy. They just said it's a disaster movie. Mm. And, I, and I, had, I had another one two years before that where I asked a, a group of leaders to talk about 
what animal is this company? And they all talked about an eagle and an osprey and they were all these amazing, elegant birds that fly and swoop and change directions and really fast. But there was one person in the room who hadn't spoken and I said to Ellen, Ellen, I'm curious, you haven't told us your animal. And she said, oh, I've just been listening to everybody and the animal I want to talk about is a snake. Mm-hmm. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room. And can you imagine a room where everybody's focus moves to listening and watching Ellen? And she stopped and I just said, oh, I'm curious. Tell me more about this. And she said, well, it's obvious to me. Isn't it obvious to you? We're a company that sheds its skin every season to adapt and change to what our customers need. And it's being a snake and shedding our skin and knowing that our past is in our future, that's what we're awesome at. And all of a sudden, the air came back into the room and everyone, ah, oh, yeah, that's right, we're a snake. And it, it was a technology company. So they, they started using snakes, uh, different types of snakes as their code names for the next version of the product they shipped. But they also started telling their customers this story mm. that the snake why why their internal and external logo is about a snake is because they shed their skin because they have to adapt and every season they're comfortable with change and know that it's a good thing. But if you didn't ask both questions, you never would have known. And that became a breakthrough for the company, not only in terms of their understanding of what it means, but also for growth and what it meant for them for growth. And they had a big growth spurt and still have uh, – not because of the snake, but because they realize what they're great at and that's shedding their skin every season. That's great because it could have gone horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. all, all the well, birds that... might have like attacked the snake, right? <laughs> they're like, oh, you know, it, there's a hush, right? It's like, oh, what does she mean where she, she thinks it's a snake? You know, snakes, are what snakes bad? Are they meant? sneaky? I, yeah, no, I, I was just, I was being open. I was, I was mm. waiting for the answer, but... The first thing that jumped to my mind was like, uh, you know, sort of like a sneaky, deceptive snake, right? Mm. Like she had something, some axe to grind, right? Yeah. But I was totally wrong. <laughs> but I can imagine that the people that were thinking bird, 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 right? When they heard mm. snake, they were they might have had this a similar reaction until she said, why a snake? Right. Mm. So if you would have stopped listening at, at, and shut her down at that point, it could have been a disaster. Maybe. Yeah. And the worst thing that could have happened for everybody was forget the fact that she said snake. It's just taking the time to listen to her. Right. Because she, she, she was a card-carrying member of the introvert club. Right. And, and you know, if you ever uh, at an event and people say, you know, hey, put your hands up if you're an extrovert and all the extroverts stand up because they weren't listening. And uh, and they say, hey, put your hand up if you're an introvert and nobody puts their hand up because if you're a card-carrying member of the introvert club, you never put your hand up. You don't <laughs> want to be noticed, right? Right. That's great. But, you know, the introverts have great observation and it's not that introversion or extroversion is right or wrong. You know, extroverts speak out aloud to think and introverts to themselves to think and there's a great balance if you can get both of those working well together that's true 
Oscar, this has been great. Uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap up. I could talk to you forever. You've got this like cool vibe energy. Was, I thoroughly enjoyed, so thank you. Um, you are at oscartrimboli.com, and uh, talk a little bit more about how people can best get in touch with Oscar. Yeah, just punch me into your favorite search engine, and Oscar Trimboli will get you. There's only one in the world. Awesome. And if you want to track down some uh, podcasts on deep listening, it's like a box of chocolates. We interview a whole bunch of professional and personal listeners to get techniques and how they hack all the high court judges all the way through to suicide counselors and FBI hostage negotiators, palliative care nurses who deal with issues at end of life and everything in between, including journalists and air traffic controllers. Uh, so if you want to check, you know, learn a, li a little bit more about listening and become one of the 100 million people to become deep listeners by 2030, uh, that's the place to do it. Awesome. Thank you, Oscar. This has been a blast again, uh, and you have a good one. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double -E E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer.